Defense Alliance Towers and Shields from the Incomparable Network. I'm Shelley Brisbane, your host, and this is episode 31. Well, friends, we're going to talk today about a movie from 1939, that most exalted year of movies. But our choice this time is a movie from MGM called The Women. And I need to let you know that I have a wonderful panel of people, some who have seen this movie, some who have not. But the first person I should introduce is the person whose idea it was for us to watch it, and that would be Lisa Schmeiser. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited about this. And thanks for bringing this movie to us, because it's one I've known forever, but I hadn't sort of put it in the top of my list of things to watch, so it was really great to get to see this again. Next up is Annette Weirstra, a returning panelist to uh, Lions, Towers, and Shields, and also the host of, the director, pardon me, of The Agents of Smooch right here on The Incomparable. Hi, Annette. It's true. And I am also a woman. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, should we all do our pronouns before we go any further? (laughs) Next up, making her return to the incomparable. Next up, making her return to Lions, Towers, and Shields, and I'm so glad to have you back, is Deb Stanish. Hi. Hi. I am so excited to be here. This is my first time watching this movie, and I have this insane desire to wear hats now. (laughs) I know. Hats are great. I love mm-hmm. hats. Yeah. So good. Also joining us for her first time on Lions, Towers, and Shields, a dear friend of mine and uh, my favorite go-to Catherine Hepburn expert, it's Judy Samuelson. Hello. Hi, Shelley. Thank you for uh, the opportunity to listen to all these smart women talk about a great movie. So we have, so so Annette, you haven't seen this movie. Deb hasn't seen this not. movie. Lisa and I time. have. Yes. So I, I like the nice mixture of haves and, and haves nots as far as, as far as whether we've seen this movie. But let's just start with, with impressions. And, and I guess Lisa, start us off by telling us why you wanted us to watch this movie. There's the superficial reason, which is it's just so pretty. I just love the sumptuous interiors, and I love the costumes by Adrian, and I adore the actresses, and it's eye candy. Just, And then you realize the bonbons are poisoned, and <laughs> you begin to listen, and the, the dialogue is whip smart, and you begin to take, a, and the characterization is layered and subtle, and it's a cynical little story, and I would actually argue it doesn't have a particularly happy ending, but the ride is the ride is enjoyable and it's a wonderful way to spend 2 hours <laughs> and it is 2 hours which is a little long for a movie of this era but i think he i think we make the most of of our time yeah. and just to sort of do a little bit of basic introduction to the movie it is 1939 mgm directed by george cukor who got the moniker woman's director and i don't think people always meant that kindly but in this case who else would you want to direct this movie maybe mitchell lyson but i think george cukor did a fine job our stars are norma shearer and joan crawford and rosalind russell and Mary Boland and oh my god so many more Paulette Goddard and Joan Fontaine and a tremendous tremendous cast all female cast Mm -hmm. every single person in this movie they go to great lengths to make sure there are no men in the movie which I think is hilarious and and delightful but so so Annette on your first viewing what was your your take well I had to say like that energy of the dialogue which this is um you know going and thinking it's very Gilmore Girls, <laughs> where <laughs> it's so mm-hmm. fast paced. I literally like was watching it, and I had to stop because I wasn't fully paying attention. I had to stop, rewind. Like, oh no, you can't not like sit and listen mm-hmm. to what they're saying because it is so fast paced, and to keep up with it. So I was like, oh, I have to sit and pay attention. I can't knit. I have to focus because there was so much happening in terms of dialogue in this movie uh it's very funny though and fun and um not everyone is super nice to each other which (laughs) is kind of real life (laughs) wow you can't even knit that's impressive i know right deb also a first timer what did you think yeah, this is like one of those movies that like, oh, someday I'm going to watch this because it has so, you know, you hear about how wonderful it is. And like Lisa was saying, like the actors in the show are just stellar. But I also have to go with Lisa. It is eye candy. It is sumptuous. And I just you just sink into this world that is uh, pretentious as all get out and mm-hmm. very classist. But mm-hmm. you just can't help but but just admire everything that's going on. And oh, my gosh, it is. 
it is not a particularly happy movie, but it's frothy in a, in a certain way. And I, I really liked how self-aware it was. Mm-hmm. And there there's a lot of social commentary that goes on in this film wrapped mm-hmm. up in some whip smart like you were saying, whip smart dialogue. And every now and then, I, there was a couple of times I just paused this movie and went, oh my God, they did that. I cannot believe they did that. <laughs> <laughs> and then I had to go right back and watch it again. You know, So yeah, it was great. I adored it. I, I This is one I would rewatch again um, because I know I missed some stuff. I just missed some things because it was so quick. And I even had like the dialogue on, the subtext on, so or the subtitles um, at times because I didn't want to miss anything. So I mentioned this comes out in 1939, which is the goal golden year of the golden era of movies and and this one this movie probably would have gotten more awards and recognition had it not been in the year with a couple of little movies like gone with the wind and with the wizard of oz and i uh, the women holds up a little better than at least one of those movies so you take um, that back about the wizard of oz yeah i, I yeah. know i'm sorry i i apologize for besmirching toto and all his little friends yeah. <laughs> i'm being entirely tongue-in-cheek i, I know uh, and and so we, we have as stars Norma Shearer and Joan Crawford, who are the queens of the MGM lot at this point, and, and both of them have been major stars in the entire decade of the 30s. And I've seen this movie before, but I really found almost all of the performances to be revelations in one way or another. Because Joan Crawford, for example, as as we'll get to, is our villain. But she, if you think about most of the roles that Crawford played... She's not always the villain. She's a she may be a striver, she may be a shop girl, mm-hmm. she may be put upon by the men in her life. But this movie, she gets to play an out and out villain, a man stealer. Norma Shearer pretty much plays to type. She is our heroine, our lodestar, our put upon uh matron, uh, and then all these other wonderful actresses are sort of swirling around as as friends and frenemies and servants. That's the other thing. Talking about how classist mm-hmm. it is, it really is. But you do see multiple strata of this mm-hmm. New York society of the late 30s. I have so much to say about this, and I hope it's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, jump in. <laughs> um, so the thing that I didn't realize until I... Uh, read an article on the costume design for the movie is Joan Crawford as Crystal Allen has a whopping four scenes in this movie. Hmm. That that's it, mm-hmm. just all of four scenes. But she's indelible because even when she's not on screen, people are talking about her, and she hangs over the Haynes household, and and she's arguably the plot device that moves everything forward. And what I what I found so interesting about um this movie is how little it seems to really like its subjects. Um, Almost no woman comes off looking good in this movie when you think about it. But um, Claire Booth Luce, I feel like she tips her hand a little bit when it comes to the class wars because the characters, the women that she treats with, um, I'd say the least disdain and doesn't set them up to say ridiculous or hypocritical or or blinkered things. Um, there are three of them. Cause I, I went through and I watched it. And, um, you know, Claire Booth Luce uh, doesn't seem to have much patience for like the chattering classes that support the pampered rich ladies or things like that. But she really seems to um, warm to the, the women in the movie who have chosen to opt out of the whole ecosystem. (laughs) And I'm thinking about Nancy, who's the writer that's on the periphery of that little group, where Nancy's job is basically to try to cut through the gossip and redirect conversation. Like, I'd love to know her backstory. I keep trying to think, is she like the spinster cousin of Mary, which is why she keeps getting invited to the circle and she's in the periphery? Or... Is she, you know, the blue stocking relative? Is she closeted? (laughs) No, because there's there's clearly a reason why they have Nancy in there. But um, Claire Booth Luce, who wrote the original, and Anita Luce both play this through line with her, where um, 
they respect her for opting out and and sticking to her life of of creative fiction. And then the other two that really seem to be treated gently in the movie are Lucy, who's the woman that runs the ranch for for Mm -hmm. all of the Reno refugees, where um, (laughs) she's the only woman in the movie who doesn't have an existential crisis at some point. And she's like, I don't even have time. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, I have an unfortunate weakness for redheaded men, and this is my life, and there's no point in getting my head twisted around about it. And then... I have a really soft spot for the woman, for the character of Stephen Haynes' secretary, the one who comes in with like that sheaf of paperwork oh, and yeah, is just she's all right. business and ticks it <laughs> off. And she's like, she's like, sign this, sign this, handle this. And and the whole time, Mary Haynes, who is the, the lead, and you're supposed to be sympathizing with her because she's clearly overwhelmed by details and she's trying to cling to this noblesse oblige. And I remember the first time I watched that, um, and I was like, I want to say 20 years ago, the first time I watched the movie, I was like, oh, wow, she's really just spun around and the secretary is merciless. The secretary secretary has total sympathy for Stephen. Wow, the deck is stacked. And on each rewatch, what gets to me is the secretary really doesn't care. Like Mary is just an item on her to-do list. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that Mary is this exceedingly wealthy woman um, who is taking a bath in the divorce and it's still not going to affect her ability to get Park Avenue apartment. I'm like, you silly cosseted thing. You know, why didn't you anticipate any of this? Why didn't you listen to your lawyers and take care of this? But I love that secretary because she's like in the she's in the movie for like three minutes total. And during the three minutes, she completely dominates with sign this, sign this. I'll handle this since you can't figure out what to do at your car. OK, fine. I'll move your furniture when you finally tell me where your where your address is. Good day. <laughs> and then the last thing she says is something like Mr. There's Haynes can't be bothered t- by these details. And then she goes. <laughs> oh, she says there are always tag ends in a divorce. Mr. That's Haynes it. hates tag ends. Thank you. And I was like, oh, and um, she'll be doing a merger and acquisition next well what i wonder is what could she have done with herself if she had been born 40 years later mm-hmm. and i She'd think that's a big that part. i think that yeah i think yeah. that's a big part of this whole movie is yeah. the limitations that it, and it, it's brought up so many mm-hmm. times by so many different characters of the deck is stacked against us we got to do what we can because we're women and this is our lot in life and we have to and it's really interesting when you think about oh well why would they put up with that the time frame but you're thinking about the toolbox a lot of these women were playing with in 1939 like a good Mm -hmm. marriage was was pretty high up there as far as you're the best you could do career-wise and they recognize that and Mm -hmm. they're trying to sort of work within that framework of they're still silly and ridiculous but when you look at some of the the showgirl Miriam and 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 Crystal and their conversations like they are very self-aware of where they're going to go and what they can do and this is their out and I think you know it's interesting when you look at the secretary character who has the career and this is like she probably could run rings around any of the men that we never see in this movie and this is what she is you know she may treat mr haynes just the way she treats mary because he's probably not particularly focused on those details and it's her job to manage the details yeah because mary aarons has that great speech that she gives to mary when they're in reno and um basically the whole speech is, you, you you win him on the battleground of sex, you've ceded the territory to Crystal, you've left this guy without a plausible social out. These were all tremendously dumb moves. And Mary's all, but my pride, but my principles. And Miriam says, a woman's compromised the minute she's born. Right. She and, knows what's up. She knows what's up. Yeah, no, Mary, it's, and I, I was thinking about that. And I was like, they should, they should like teach this in women's studies classes. <laughs> I'm pretty and, sure they do. <laughs> yeah, because how is this, how is this not basically an explanation for, oh, the patriarchy, you're swimming in it. Um, <laughs> and I love her. Like she's my, fa- I think she's another one of my favorite characters in the book because book movie um, movie because she's just so unsentimental like mm-hmm. she's she big is. heart she's big hearted but she has no but she has no sloppy sentimentality and the casting is perfect Paulette Goddard really does that role. yes oh, great yes great oh, it's funny God. when I was looking at this looking at the Wikipedia page for this I'm like Anita Luz wrote this okay mm-hmm. I get this now because yeah. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is one of my favorite books not movies my mm-hmm. one of my favorite books because it is so so funny so self-aware, but yet so playing within a field that 
is very familiar would have been very familiar to people that time and it just skewers both classes and like that character to me really embodies a lot of the dialogue and the characterization in in gentlemen prefer blondes Mm -hmm. that um lorelei goes through so yeah it's uh it's good stuff so, so Claire Booth Luce, just really quickly, she's born into not great circumstances. She and her father falls on, I read a biography of her not long ago. Her father has reverses and her she's basically raised by her mother. She becomes an actress and eventually becomes a writer. She works at Vanity Fair in the early 30s. She meets a rich guy who's it's weird if you if you read through the sort of incestuous family it's not literally incestuous but the sort of family tree of who people are she marries this guy named Brokaw who will eventually uh, marry Francis Brokaw who is a, one of Henry Fonda's wives who is James Fonda's mother and it's like this whole thing but so she marries Brokaw who, who is sort of a who is a drunk and who who Claire Booth loose kicks to the curb and then marries Henry Luce pretty much right around the time she's writing and getting this play produced on Broadway. And then Henry Luce is the founder of the, of the Time Life, and he is just sort of growing his empire at this point. So she starts out in fairly modest circumstances, but through her own hard work and through uh, becoming attached to the, to the right people, she becomes uh, quite wealthy, and then she becomes a congresswoman and an ambassador later on in life. She's... Henry Luce is uh, for is a conservative Republican. She has those. She has conservative politics too. She's probably not quite as conservative as as he, but she's appointed by Republican presidents. And then uh, th- this movie is based on the play, but not completely literally. They had to make some production code changes to to get the movie made. But but the the play was something of a sensation in like 1936. Have you and read the play? I haven't read the play. No. I'll say I own a copy of the play and it's savage. It is much meaner than the movie. I remember <laughs> reading that that that, that, that <laughs> yeah. and that it's just it's it's nonstop and <laughs> it's yeah no it was um and it's an enjoyable read if um <laughs> if you're like in a safe psychological place <laughs> you're not you're not entertaining any dark ideas about humanity but it's it is merciless um one of the characters who who actually they really soft pedal in the movie but but goes um is Miss Edith Potter is just savaged in the play um and it's a much more scathing indictment of uh, a class of women that I suspect Claire Booth Luce might have had a very complicated emotional regard toward, given that she was not born to the class, but rather like... She gets to know them, and by the time she's writing this, this yeah. marriage to Brokaw is, is failing, mm-hmm. and she has a kid... And and she is she's come up through sort of literary society in New York City. So she is adjacent to the sort of wealthy people she's writing about, but she's not really quite one of them ever. And and she wasn't particularly well liked by the Brokaw family either. So, mm-hmm. yeah, she had she had some biting uh, sarcasm. To, and, and just to, to clarify for people who aren't looking at IMDb right at this moment, Anita Luce, who wrote the screenplay, it is a different last name spelling. They are not connected. But Anita Luce wrote many, many uh, screenplays in Hollywood and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes is one of her more famous ones, but there, there are many others as well. Yeah. Back to the women. So. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just want to say, though, I think even though Crystal Allen is such a vicious villain, because of that patriarchal context, she's mm-hmm. understandably vicious because yeah. it is basically your only path out is... Uh, through marriage because she's not going to get ahead as the per- at the perfume counter like there's she's not going to rise up the ranks and become a manager of the department store like there there isn't any place to go because you're not supposed to stay there you're supposed to have your little like oh have a little job until you find yourself a man and so trying to position yourself to get the best man possible yes she chooses to go after a married man, but she just sees it as like a strategy, right? And she has a career path. Uh, yeah, it's like <laughs> he's those established men. They're a little more wealthy, and it's probably a faster mm-hmm. rise up the the financial ladder to jump that. And so, you know, uh, I have some sympathy for her, even yeah. if she's not likable. But I respect. Respect the hustle. <laughs> and, yeah. and how is that different from going to college and getting the MRS degree that women no. did yes. at the same yes. time? Do I mean, you were yes. just of the same class, so it was acceptable. 
Right, so you had a quicker ride and you could do it at a younger age. So Stephen and Mary have been married 10 years, so they probably met around college age or a little older than that. You have to assume she made her debut and he was in her circle and that's how it went. I I think the movie tips its hand on the classism when um, it gives Crystal the sin of bad taste. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Because you see she has that, there's the scene at the perfume counter where she has the phone call with Stephen and it's genius because it shows you how quickly she can code switch with men when she needs to. But through the rest of the movie, I, I... I find it a little odd that the same woman who can be a social chameleon to grab a man doesn't know how to be a social chameleon to fit in with the society that she wants to run in. Because, I mean, this is this is really clearly broadcast, like in the scene with the ridiculous bathroom and the fact that she's dumb enough to go after Buck Winston. And then you contrast that with Miriam Ahrens, who is arguably from the same social strata that Sylvia is, but she's managed to keep her feet on this on on on, on the tightrope the whole time. Because two years in, and Mrs. Howard Fowler is the cream of the Mrs. Howard the second Mrs. Howard Fowler is is greatly preferred over the first one. Like that is just conveyed all the way through, especially with the way she dresses compared to Rosalind Russell's character. Uh, swans around in her ridiculous costume. <laughs> well, and Crystal has yeah. made a good friend, a good friend mm-hmm. in the sense of a useful friend yeah. with Rosalind Russell's character. But she, you're right, she doesn't give her the deference is the wrong word but she just doesn't treat her like a friend as she would she turns when she's not you know cooing with steven she Mm -hmm. she just i I feel like you're right i feel like it's the movie saying remember she's our villain and because rosalind russell it's it's funny because even in the beginning of the movie rosalind russell is just saying the meanest most terrible things but she's she's doing so in this sort of really pleasant really high class way and Mm -hmm. it's kind of toward the middle of the movie that you realize she's a snake She's an absolute snake. And mm-hmm. you could call her the villain of the piece more so than Crystal, except that Crystal is the one that takes the provoking action to, of stealing Mary's husband. But the thing is, is, is if it weren't for the fact that Sylvia is, is poking, 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 poking nonstop, she's the one who actively sets up to break apart that family. Right. Because Mary's first impulse is to listen to her mother when her mother says... You have a really nice life, and if your husband stepping out on you is the worst thing you have to deal with, that's not bad. So put up and shut up and ride it out. You know he doesn't love her, so you don't really lose much. And instead, it's Sylvia who keeps whipping up drama out of her own jealousy and for her own amusement. So I'd argue she's actually a bigger heavy, heavy than Crystal is. Like, like we've all decided... Crystal's just a girl trying to get by in the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> well, and so like all of th- that group of friends is toxic yeah. to Mary because Mary oh, is weak willed, right? Yeah. And she mm-hmm. doesn't know how to either stand up to her friends or to what's happening in her marriage. And none of those people have her back or her best interest. You know who has her back? Her mother and her daughter have her back. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know who doesn't have your back is the friends who make you go find out about your affair by sending you to a manicure. Oh, that's the big so gossip. Harsh. Like that is that was oh, vicious. See, that is not good punch. girlfriends. No. no. And it's funny that you have a scene at the end where people who are, you know, and I'm air quoting, not of Mary's class, turn out to be a little, maybe a little bit better friends to her than her actual mm-hmm. society friends. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. Because right. Sylvia sets Peggy up to do the same thing. I mean, poor, which, mm-hmm. okay, can we talk about the opening credits and the little yes. animal montage? Oh, yes, let's yes. do. <laughs> oh, that tips the hand. I love it so much. Yes. So, I mean, we have little Peggy as a lamb just sent to the slaughter by mm-hmm. Sylvia because of whatever amusement that she's getting out of destroying marriages and having endless things to gossip about with manicurists, I guess. I don't know. It's just, she's terrible. But on the other hand, Rosalind Russell's physical comedy in this mm-hmm. movie oh, so is so good to watch. It is just, I never think about her in that way as being mm-hmm. this like great I like her in comedian. this much better than in His Girl Friday and I don't really love that movie anyway yeah. but I think in this there's much better it's more s- subtle is kind of a weird word to say because she's not a subtle subtle character but it's more subtle than in His Girl Friday which is sort of yelling and pratfalls and, yes. and running around but this is all of the characters they, they live so well both in their class in their in their station mm-hmm. and in their costumes and so Rosalind Russell is aware of who she is and is physically acting that out 
Yeah. Oh yeah. God, it's just it's that's, so good to watch. Oh, that scene in the powder room where Mary is 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 setting up the fake gossip and she's talking about Doctor Sylvester. <laughs> oh, I don't even have to pay him. He he just likes listen and and Sylvia pops back and Sylvia like hears this and you see her do the double take and then she comes back in and she like she hunches her shoulders over and she makes her eyes really big. She's is that you, Mary? And every time I see that, I start laughing. It's just so good. I think she's the one that changes in the course of the movie as her life has kind of fallen apart, as she's lost her marriage, and as, she, mm-hmm. as she's spending more time wrecking other people's marriages. Most of the rest of them are kind of who they are through the whole movie, but she's kind of breaking apart, and a lot of it is her own fault because she's spent so much psychic energy being a snake. Yeah, yeah. Terrible. And every scene that she has in the spa, like every like little gym scene she has with her trainer, is just so good. The, legs, the rolling so against the wall. No. I would I, like to go to that gym. It just seems like so pure on one level, and I don't know, not not a lot of pressure. Just like mm-hmm. lift your legs, but I feel like you get a you, you get a decent like core workout there if you did that a lot. I don't know. Maybe stop talking while you're working out. You know, stop yeah. gossiping for a minute. I feel, like the, I feel like the gossiping engages your core muscles. <laughs> it does. It would be, it, wouldn't it? I'd be more likely to go mm-hmm. if I was gossiping. The, did you guys ever see the TV show Coupling, the sitcom in the, from the UK? Yes. Yeah. Um, there's a scene in one of the episodes, and I can't remember which, but basically the three female characters... Um, like need to regroup and soothe their ruffled feelings and they go to quote unquote the temple of woman and it's basically just a beauty <laughs> salon where they all sit in the chairs and get pampered and get their heads together and the first time I saw that I flashed back to the women and the salon at the beginning and how it really is the temple to it was like the temple of woman and the temple too like a very specific type of womanhood <laughs> that is a, a an acute point that Mary's mother says to her like when men start feeling their age or feeling dissatisfied with something, uh, you know, they act a certain way. Women have a lot more options because Mm -hmm. we're much more creative than men. We, you know, can redecorate the house or we can go on a vacation or we can go Mm -hmm. to a spa or we can get a new wardrobe. And men just have to release all that energy through sex. It's the only (laughs) thing they know how to do. Where women, on the other hand, we can go to the temple of women. (laughs) And I think think there's some indication, too, that women are more self-aware, right? So not only Mm -hmm. are you, you're doing something to distract or to release energy, but you're aware that's what you're doing, whereas the guy doesn't really get that the reason he's dating Crystal is that he's having a midlife crisis or that he's, he's unsatisfied with his own life, that it has nothing to do with what he's actually doing. Right. The places in this movie are kind of amazing from the the spa to the uh, manicurist to the the dress shop to the the bathrooms at the clubs. I mean, all, and all of them are really designed to be women's space to, to Mary's house even. They're all women's mm-hmm. spaces. So it's not only yes. just that they've the conceit of they're only women in the movie. The only way you're in contact with men is they're on the other ends of phones, but you don't even hear them. Uh, there aren't even any photographs of men. That's that was purposeful. But but all the that. spaces <laughs> are designed for women and then there's of course all the fashion which I'm I'm, at some point I'm just going to throw the fashion ball out there and I'm going to let you guys toss it around (laughs) because I know nothing about fashion but I want you to talk about it but I mean the places I mean the bathrooms are amazing there are a lot of bathrooms in this movie but they're not really the bathrooms as you would imagine them in real life (laughs) (laughs) I think that one of the it took me actually a little bit to realize oh there's no men in this movie Um, because at opening, you know, when you're at the salon and stuff, you don't expect there to be men. It wasn't until like a few scenes in where I realized, Oh, we're not going to see a man like no. And you start looking, not an extra, not Mm -hmm. anything, you know, but it's kind of refreshing to be embedded in such an all female space because you don't see that a lot. Even now, you know, in the fifties, there was a, a, a remake called The Opposite Sex, and it was a musical, and uh, June Allison played the Norma Norma Shearer part, Mm. and there were men in it. Leslie Nielsen was in it, and and it's not nearly as as sharp or... I mean, it was written by by, um, Faye Kanan and and Michael Kanan, the couple. Michael Kanan was Garson Kanan's brother, also a screenwriter, 
and um, it's and, and they're and they're very good screenwriters. It just didn't have the uh, like sort of specialness, the the, mm-hmm. the sense of um, it being really focused on the women um, as the thirty nine version does. There was a 2008 remake too. I was wondering if any of you yeah. have seen that. I have one. seen it. I I actually re- realized halfway through the movie I was like I've seen this movie but not this movie. <laughs> and so I yeah. looked it up and it stars Meg Ryan and I'm pretty sure when I thought about it that they did the same thing that you don't see men in it. Um it's I think it's not as sharp and as good as this, but I do like I do like aspects of the ending being a more modern ending. It's a little more empowering mm. <laughs> overall. But I, it's like I apparently did not stick with me because it took half the movie for me to even remember. It. <laughs> so I don't know what that says about the remake. Well, let's talk some about fashion. As Lisa said, designs by Adrian. Every everybody in every scene in this movie is dressed very very intentionally. Some people are over the top. The hats are amazeballs. Uh, but you just just riff on the fashion for me, if you would, because I I don't even know what to say other than oh my goodness, oh my gosh. Um, I'll start because I was like, it's fun to look at. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what I love is how carefully Adrian delineates everybody's character through their clothing. Because um, Mary Haynes would, she's the least showy of the bunch um, in terms of what she wears. Uh, But all of her clothes are exquisitely made. And what he's trying to do with this character is point out that she's so refined and she's so... I wouldn't say impossibly rich, but she's had such an impeccable upbringing and she's got such refinement that she has the innate taste to to be able to and then the kind of quiet confidence where where everything she wears is always going to be appropriate and flattering and and um, situationally apt and just it's it's that quiet mostly boring chic like I and I love that the movie revolves around somebody who doesn't really have a signature style other than it's very discreet and very rich and then I also really love how he leans into dressing everybody else in so many ways like I love how when the Countess de Love is on the ranch you see her clumping around in these dungarees and a button-down shirt and then just ropes of pearls (laughs) <laughs> um, and I love you take a look at how Miriam Aaron's um, changes like when you first meet her as the the showgirl headed off to the showgirl headed off to Reno um, she's she's a sharp little number but when you see her again two years later she's wearing this very chic very classic Grecian gown with just a little bit of glitter and I mean she makes Sylvia look even more frumpy and awkward than she would otherwise given that they put poor Rosalind Russell in what is essentially like a black tulle lampshade with a giant <laughs> cloud of netting and this fantastically awful hat <laughs> But it's just, it, I honestly think, like, Adrian did a great job dressing everybody. Roz Russell is his peak. Because uh, the outfits they put her in, like, each one is more ridiculous than the last. <laughs> and, like, they add to the physical comedy. She always has one foot vaguely wrong. Like, there's the scene where she's in Crystal's bathroom talking to her, and she's wearing this ridiculous draped scarf and turban outfit. And then you realize that the ornament on the top of her turban is shaped like a monkey. <laughs> And you're like, for a point, you're like, oh wow, that's that's really apt. It's just so much fun to like. If you ever were like, I'm not really sure how clothing advances characterization in a movie. Like, you basically have two choices: you can go watch Rear Window and just look at Grace Kelly the whole time, or you can watch this movie and be like, oh, I see. We're meant to feel this when we look at Mary. We're you know, we're oh, she's 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 the exemplar, um, you know, coming from a position of privilege, blah blah blah. And then you can go through and look at everybody else and say um you know crystal is crystal again commits the unforgivable sin of bad taste like striving is not the crime here bad taste have, is the have, crime in, in have in, you guys um, ever seen the um, world and you know, there's about a six mm-hmm. or seven minute uh segment that was in the original movie that's that's cut that's in filmed in technicolor that's a fashion show it was something it was something that 
that wasn't really unusual. Yes. But um, yes. there, yeah. the clothes you see, yes. the, the Adrian design clothes are all really, they're not necessarily character driven. So they're all like clothes that you mm-hmm. could just see out on the street, as opposed to some of the ridiculous things he has them wearing in the, like the Sylvia clothes in the movie. Um, but it's interesting that, the, and that, and mm-hmm. that it was so kind of out of place, but it was just sort of, you know, tech, the color was new and, and Adrian was an 800-pound gorilla on the lot, too. So this this, this kept him happy. <laughs> what, was it in color just for that section because it was so expensive to do Technicolor? Or, like, why – does anyone know why they opted to do just that piece? Like, I didn't mind it. I actually was quite – entranced by the and the way they put on the fashion show with that revolving yeah. piece with the and the, the sort of storytelling telling element of the fashion show itself where each scene kind of created a feel and a story and I yeah I was entranced by it so what I love about it is it feels so escapist because it's mm-hmm. it's like these women are sitting there in their little lives and then boom technicolor fashion of course they're seduced by it you know and it was like it was poorly reviewed i mean it was like it was yeah, people it was hate it no, they're wrong really yeah so wrong it has been cut out of versions that have been shown on television and i think there's a dvd version that's cut out the version i have that some of y'all may have seen has it in it in there and it's that's on the, the blu-ray i believe so it's that's it's the version i have is with the fashion but it, show. it reminds me of the way you would use a musical number to just like let's take a break mm-hmm. And let's, you know, and the interesting, the things I read about it, compare it to sort of expressionist stuff like the the Dali uh, contributions to Alfred Hitchcock's Spellbound a few years later, which I love, by the way. I didn't think of them in this context. I think of them more of a, a this is going to sound weird because it, the aesthetic is different, but I think of it more as a Bus, Busby Berkeley number where you just like take time and you say, let's do something amazing that is kind of out of context with this little movie that we're making and then in six minutes we'll be back to the movie so i completely saw it as sort of a a, i don't know whether it would be an homage or a skewing skewing of elsa (laughs) scaparelli's fashions which were incredibly influential at that time and she was very very um heavily influenced by she collaborated with Dolly and Jean Cocteau and so she was known for like these crazy buttons like some of her clothes are in the Philadelphia Museum of Art so like you know I've seen them she did some like she did the lobster dress that everybody talks about Mm -hmm. she was the first person did sort of a wrap dress Um, she had a very forward fashion sense that you can see mirrored in some of these things. There was this one outfit in the fashion show that had the hand sort of clasp button. Oh, yes, and I yes, thought that yes. that was that oh, yes. was poking that was poking at Scaparelli. Mm. That was definitely a poke at Scaparelli. But there's also that scene that one of the scenes that I absolutely gasped at when you see the models throwing peanuts to the monkeys that are dressed yeah. like them, <laughs> and you're thinking, oh, you know, they're they're. It's a commentary on how they really are, just sort of amusing, entertaining things in society. But then they turn around and start throwing peanuts at the audience. Uh-huh. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, this movie is, yeah, this movie is saying something about women's place in society and the classism oh, yeah. in society. Oh, yeah, it was so good. That was such a great scene, just that whole monkey thing. Because it really made you think about what is my position? What is my, what are women's position in society at this time? And do they see themselves as the monkey in the cage? Or do they see themselves as the peanut thrower? I think it depends on how many zeros you have in your bank account. I think it's very telling there's no Coco Chanel influence in any of the fashions we saw. No, hmm. real, I didn't. Because uh, Chanel was on the upswing from the 20s through the 30s. And it was a really, for all, the, and I love the fashion in this movie. Don't get me wrong. I, you just heard me, blah, 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 but it's not very modern feeling. Other than no. the other than the, the nods to you know the surrealism, it's not very modern feeling. And one of the things that has always struck me about Chanel is how modern it feels. Like she basically invented the modern silhouette and modern expectations for what luxurious clothes and sportswear should look like, and um, that's wholly missing from this movie. And it seems like a little bit of an odd exclusion when you consider that this is the class of women who could have afforded Chanel. But then when you take a look at the philosophies of the characters and then what the authors are trying to say about them, it makes sense. But it's one of those things where I didn't notice it the first or second time. Then it wasn't until I had done some reading on 
Coco Chanel and Deanna Vreeland and was like, huh, this is so weird. These two really influential forces are, are nowhere to be found in what is arguably one of the biggest female aesthetic uh, uh, collections committed to cinema. Like, I don't think there's been another movie that has loved clothes and characters, female characters, and showcase them as much as, as this one has. Yeah, I just opened up Elsa Scaparelli's Wikipedia page, and it says, yeah. along with Coco Chanel, her greatest rival. Yeah. <laughs> She's regarded as one of the most prominent, but it also says she did not adapt to the change in fashion following World War II. So I think by yeah. the time 1939 came around, her stuff was starting to look a little old-fashioned, mm. even though it... it still had pushed some boundaries in its well, and, and I don't know what Adrian's relationship would have been with the Chanel aesthetic either. Like if he's been around designing Hollywood stuff for, for years and years, he, he may have a proprietary interest in a certain kind of yeah. design. And and she was in Hollywood very briefly, but her clothes were a disaster uh, when they had her try to design for the screen because what made her clothes work in real life actually doesn't get picked up on camera. And she didn't like having this is Gabriel Chanel she didn't like having to try to figure out how to make her style work for the camera with you know using fabrics like satin that pick up light beautifully and reflect the silhouette and the embellishments and things like that and so I think her arrangement was very quietly terminated and <laughs> she went back to France and was like Ugh, never again <laughs> I'll just work with the Nazis instead yeah that seems like a better plan <laughs> less headachey <laughs> than, the, than, the, than the executives in Hollywood <laughs> they don't have really fashion sense anyway so <laughs> uh, it's um one of the things is, you know, we, we, we did mention earlier that, um, and, and this gets brought up with the movie all the time, it's an all-female cast, the animals they used on set and in the credits are all female, um, and yet they spend the whole movie talking about men, and I'm pretty sure that tension is deliberate. It was mm-hmm. it's, it's meant to draw your attention to the fact that even when you try to create these female spaces, they're still circumscribed by the patriarchy or, or what have you, because these women can't break out of thinking of themselves in relationship to the men in their lives. Like they never really think of themselves, or I should say, with the exception of the three I mentioned earlier, <laughs> they don't ever really think of themselves um as people, except in how they as people can successfully relate to the men who make their lives possible. We had that one conversation with the lingerie model, um, mm-hmm. who was, I guess, talking during backstage in the fashion show when they're all going in for their fittings and they're in little private rooms, like, oh, my God. Um, and the one uh, the one says to the other one, like, you just can't trust any man. They only want one thing. And the, and the woman who's been walking around saying, you know, the lingerie without with the zipper and no stays says, well, what else do we have to give? It's like laying it out there. Right. I mean, it's it's an economy and they mm-hmm. are working within the constraints in some case very some cases very lavish constraints they they live well but they're still subject to the whims of either a man leaving them or creating the social situations in which they live and you know to some extent they're friends and who it is they hang around with is circumscribed by that because all of those people that that Mary Haynes has lunch with at the beginning are mm-hmm. are understood to be of the same social class which is what was one of the reasons why you know when Crystal essentially is trying to gate crash, it's actually interesting that it's easy for her to, to do that. So she ends up marrying Stephen, and then mm-hmm. she and Sylvia become sort of a of a of a, a a tight duo, even though they're not really actual friends. And none of these people, I would argue, are, are actual friends. But but who they hang around with is is circumscribed by the society, and they probably have all known each other since they came out or since they mm-hmm. were in boarding school together or whatever. Well, there's that exchange between Crystal and Sylvia where Sylvia says, I've gotten you into all of the very best houses. And Crystal shoots back, yes, and I've gotten all of their very best insults. And um, (laughs) one gets the sense that Stephen has become a bit of a social pariah because he married Crystal, who, again, let it be said, only crime is bad taste. Um, And Sylvia is currently persona non grata because she's that dreaded extra woman at the dinner table. Uh-oh. You know Probably what? no one liked anyway. She was just... Right. <laughs> yeah. You know what I wonder is because the relationship between Mary and Mary's mother and Mary's daughter is fascinating mm-hmm. because the mother gives Mary all of this real practical advice about what she should do with her relationship. Basically, suck it up, do what you have to do to, to get him back. 
Mary's relationship with her daughter has not progressed to that point. And, and Mary, because she's play, she's not cynical and she's, you know, sort of a, so, sort of naive in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. her relationship with her daughter is pure and sweet and warm and is does not have that sort of catty aspect to it. And I found myself wondering, you know, how long before Virginia, Virginia Weidler grows into this position where she has to be that kind of woman to get by and where her grandmother starts giving mm-hmm. her bad advice <laughs> or good <laughs> advice, depending on your point of view. But yeah. that that relationship is so unique in the whole movie. And they actually spend a lot of time. And I, I'm sure that a lot of it is about making the point about the family breaking up and that, that it's this mm-hmm. is bad not only because Mary would be sad, but because a child would not have a father in the home. But they really do spend a lot of time, both at the beginning of the movie and later on after they break up, in that relationship with Norma Shearer and, and uh, Virginia Widler's character. I think, though, it's that whole, like, that's, it's almost a respite Mm-hmm. In the movie, because every other female, not every other, but like a lot of the core relationships are so competitive. And it's just amusing to me that you have this whole movie full of women and it still wouldn't probably pass the Blechdahl test. No. <laughs> not, not that no, that existed then. No. But you're just like, but I do think it is intentionally because it's like it just shows how in that era and possibly still a lot of our lives now like we cannot escape the patriarchy even when you are in these female spaces talking to your friends that we cannot get away from how you know you know men are running running the world out there mm-hmm. and i think that the 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 difference between crystal and steven and mary and steven even though we never see them with him is that mary is probably the respectable proper wife mm-hmm. and that you're supposed to you're supposed to have the fling with crystal you were not supposed to leave your respectable wife and bring her crystal to the table in the society you know so like he mm-hmm. it's just the you know i, I don't know it's just so fascinating mm-hmm. to so having the affair out. isn't the crime it was marrying her it, that was the exactly crime. Right. exactly it's like you don't promote the mistress to wife well because that breaks society Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it and especially because contract. Yeah, it breaks yeah. the social contract and Crystal does not fit in with I mean, she doesn't. She doesn't. She doesn't fit in with society as it is structured. But she has the same catty instincts as the other women there do. It's just expressed in a different way. She perhaps does not have the experience to to play like as as one of you said earlier about being able to adjust to the uh, the social constructs, she and doesn't say code switch effectively, which yes. is kind of amazing because right. she manages to do it enough to na- nail Stephen, but then she either gets <laughs> yeah, lazy. she nails him. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I, I was thinking that Mary's relationship with Little Mary is um, meant to establish a couple things about her. One that you know she's she's a good mother. Um, you know, because she's companionate. And two, she's an unusual mother for her social class because you have Edith Potter who keeps popping out babies. Like in the play, she's up to like eight. <laughs> and in the play, there's a scene where she's just had a newborn and she's smoking a cigarette and the ash falls onto the newborn's face and she doesn't notice. <laughs> oh the God. nurse has to actually take the baby away and, and, and ah, over it. Um, but the idea is that Edith just keeps popping out babies because she and Phelps can't be bothered to you know keep track of, of anything. And Edith is completely indifferent to, to every, all these people she's produced. Um, whereas Mary has the one daughter and just treats her like someone she wants to be around and is nurturing and respectful with her. And it's seen as being both exemplary and unusual for women of her class. So this is this is like stacking the deck for Mary all the way through the first act. It's true. And and again, like her relationship with her, her mother, similarly, her relationship with little Mary is also very physical. They touch yes. one another. They hug. All the time. It's, yeah. it's so great. And her relationship with her mother... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I kind of expected the mother to because because that actress has played many an annoying mother in, in movies. And she just expect her to come in and go, let me tell you what to do. You're doing this. Wrong. And she gives her advice that Mary doesn't want to hear, but she doesn't give it in a way that Mary can't hear it. She she yes. is caring. Mary, 100 percent at all times, respects mm-hmm. and wants her mother in her life. So you have three generations of women who who genuinely care for each other in this family. 
And they appear to be sharing an apartment in um, in the post divorce milieu because you see there's the dinner there's the uh, dinner party that goes on and Mary's mother has absented herself because she can't stand the people that Mary's hanging out with <laughs> and then there's I'm that kind of with her on that but. oh my gosh and then there's that I I, I uh, Mary am Aaron's forever though I'm sorry I love yes. her <laughs> I agree I agree. And then there's that. And then after everybody goes home, you see her and she's just walking around this atomizer. Yes. And she's like, I'm fumigating the place. (laughs) But again, that doesn't create tension between Mary and her mom. It's just like, oh, well, that's that's just what mom's going to do. And Mary is in so many ways. She's powerless. Like she's powerless to tell her friends where to get off or to find new friends. She's powerless to figure out how to deal with her husband, either to get him to stop having the affair or to finally say, all right, mm-hmm. that's it, we're done. Because she doesn't she doesn't divorce him as an act of strength. She no. she divorces him through a sort of weakness and she's she's kind of to use an expression I hate, she's kind of driven him away. Yeah. Right. And so th- at that point she feels like she's forced to divorce him. But there's she never really makes any decisions in this movie that are particularly admirable. <laughs> We have to wonder of a person of her class too. I mean, you you get the sense that she came from money. She probably never really had to make any hard decisions in her life. She's right. never had conflict. Everything's been easy for her. Exactly. Yeah, that's, that's so true. here's a here's yeah. a situation where you know she has a chance to exert herself in some way. And she's being pushed by Sylvia. Maybe this feels like a rebellious, I'm standing on my own moment. And she doesn't want it. But yeah, you got, kind of get the impression that everything has just been very... The, the hardest thing she had to do was learn how to fish on her honeymoon. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Like, she's never not- discovered any hard truths. And so she's completely unequipped for what happens when she learns a hard truth about a human relationship. And she responds in the worst way possible. Because she's never faced adversity or even realized that that's a thing people have to face. Well, that whole thing about it taking two years for her to grow claws, I think that's really true because I think she didn't have the capacity to do what she does at the end of the movie. She's like, all right, I'm determined to to do this thing now and I'm going to fight fire with fire. I'm going to use the tactics that I've learned from being around these other women that are not tactics I ever wanted to deploy in my own life. Finally, I figured out how to do it. And I'm going to make a surgical strike and I'm going to get my man back. Yeah. I mean, you could argue that it's a tragedy in the sense that Mary Haynes falls from a state of uh, content and in- contentment and innocence to a state where she's just as manipulative as the people who were her frenemies. Um, but I I don't know if that's necessarily a sad ending, because as you pointed out earlier, Shelley, someone's going to have to deliver unto little Mary the lessons of, of, of uh, what it takes to, to have a functional life. <laughs> so it's best if Mary learns some of them first. It's probably beneficial that little Mary got to spend some time with Crystal and absolutely knows what Crystal is about and what kind of a <laughs> negative yeah. impact that that woman had on her life and why. It's not just, oh, it's daddy's second wife that I don't like because she's a second. She sees the things that Crystal does that undermine her mother and father. And mm-hmm. so hopefully that will be educational for her. It also comes around in a circle. It's like basically Mary ends up where she begun began, and it's sort of a statement of, uh, you think you're you, you know you kind of just there's no place to go for for women, and I think that is a like a little depressing. I I, I and I think that's a moment a moment in time where there wasn't a lot. I think that's when I think of the remake. That's the thing I remembered was the um, Mary Haynes character builds a career so she's that rich society woman who builds a career and then oh yeah then she takes Stephen back because he realizes that she's she's so much more than he remembered um which of course you i feel like you'd have to do in a modern retake because to put this ending in the same like right now would just be like what (laughs) uh and so I I did like that about the remake, but it it just does it circles back and it's like, well, she was already kind of in the best position she was going to get. And she's like, the happy ending is getting back to where you started. One thing I'll say about other movies of this era where the story is about women, whether it's women that are being cheated on or women who are who are who are centered in the story is a lot of times those movies usually written and made by men 
don't like the women very much. And there's this moralizing tone. There's this lecturing tone that if only the woman will change her ways. And mm-hmm. yes, the people, Mary's mother does advise her to let go of her pride. Mary does have to to make a compromise in order to get what she ultimately wants the most, which is her husband back. But And, and probably it's also because I have a soft spot for George Cukor, who was a gay man. But I just feel like this movie is not lecturing its subjects. Mm-hmm. I think it is, mm-hmm. is is smart in the ways that we've talked about, about the time and about the limitations that these women face. And so I, I don't feel talked down to as a viewer. No, I think movie. it's critiquing it. Yes. Yeah. It's, so it's it, like, I see that as it's critiquing that that's the best she can do. That, mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Congratulations, you've settled. <laughs> Yay, you got right back to where you started with. All is right in the world mother. again. I, I think Cukor's a genius for just letting a lot of the, the different scenes breathe, where you get to overhear conversations that the women have with each other, and where you get to hear how the women don't even listen to the words flying out of their own mouth. I mean, Sylvia's like the queen of this. Oh, it's true. But but what I loved about his whole approach to all of this is, like you said, he doesn't moralize, but he lets people draw multiple conclusions that both conflict and make sense at the same time. (laughs) And that's extraordinarily respectful to your audience, which is another reason I like the movie is I find it very relaxing to, to watch something that doesn't treat me like an idiot. And it's, and you're watching this film and you're realizing that there's, there's really very few likable people in this. Mm -hmm. And yet you're having such a good time. Uh It's really true. And you're thinking I'd have a drink with them. I I would enjoy learning about your life and (laughs) staying up to date with it as long as I could do it over social media. (laughs) It is a pretty rare thing to have this many unlikable people and still enjoy the time that you're spending. And it's not just because the clothes are pretty, although that doesn't hurt. Oh, it doesn't hurt. I just want to go to the party. I mean, Mm -hmm. like a cool hat and dress up and drink champagne and then like go away and, and hang out and gossip with like all the gossip that you've obviously gonna get from this party. You could be like the out of town sister who comes to visit. Yeah, and then you go back. You home. come in, you 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 circulate for a while, catch up, and then you like get out of dodge because <laughs> you don't want to become the subject of all the gossip. Exactly. No. Be careful of, and I think that is a moral of the story too. Is you know you're putting up with this and you're not calling it out eventually it's going to bite you in the ass. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds like a good place to leave it unless there are some loose ends that we have not uh, not covered. I just have to tell you all something. Remember how I said I've seen this before? Mm-hmm. Um, it just wasn't this version. I've seen the play two years ago. <gasps> oh, wow. <laughs> cool. I was like, wait a second. I, and I just didn't connect it because uh, the cast is so much smaller, right? So I think they had six six or seven women and I had to look it up at our local Walter Dare theater. It's a really small local theater. And it's like, I've seen this play a few years ago in 2018. So there you go. So, uh, yeah, apparently. And did you like it at the time? I did like it. And the costumes in that, that it was set as a period piece. So of like that era and the costumes were great. The performances were really funny and, uh, I enjoyed it. It was also on Broadway in the early 70s, which I, and that's when mm-hmm. I saw it. And mm-hmm. uh, Myrna Loy was uh, the Lucille <gasps> Watson part. Oh, nice. And, um, uh, oh, God, I'm trying to remember all the people who were in it. It was what um, Arlene Dahl was in it. Um, and yeah, it didn't have, I mean, on stage, it doesn't have that same kind of flow and movement that, and the ca- number of cast members that the, that the film has. But um, it was fun to see on stage. You know, there was also, a revival a couple of years ago, too, where um, I want to say up 2001, where I think it's Jennifer Tilly plays the Crystal Allen role. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I don't remember who else was. I don't remember who played. Oh, Cynthia Nixon plays um, Mary Haynes. Right, right. And Jennifer Tilly. And I'm sure there were some other people that were big names and big casts. But um, what I remember is reading reviews of the play. And apparently there's a scene where the blonde Jennifer Tilly stands up after having been in the tub and she's fully nude on the stage. Mm -hmm. And the whole point to having her stand up in that scene was to convey that she was a bottle blonde. And (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And I, I, and I was like, Oh, okay. That's, 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 that's certainly a thing that would not have made it into the movie. No. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We know it's funny. What, what Claire Boothless died, what in the eighties, I think. Mm -hmm. Something like that. She lived a long, I think I remember reading that like she received royalties from this play like up until she died because it hmm. is constantly been on tour. There's been yeah. remakes. It's it's a, a theater staple. Oh, it has some. And she never had a theatrical success like that again. She wrote some other things, mm-hmm. but this was kind of the and and of course she moved on with her life and did other things. But she did mm-hmm. attempt to to write other plays that were not nearly as successful. But I remember that too. That she yes yeah, she just continued to get royalties. Oh my goodness! Living that Mary Haynes that, lifestyle. Um, Jennifer Coolidge <laughs> played Edith in the revival, and I'm now a little sorry I didn't get to see that because I love Jennifer Coolidge. <laughs> Fun, so many good women's parts. Oh yeah. Well, thanks everybody for joining me, Deb Stanish, Lisa Schmeiser, Annette Wistra, and Judy Samuelson. It was great to talk to all of you about the women. A wonderful movie from 1939. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, please go to theincomparable.com slash LTS and subscribe. And please become a member of The Incomparable while you're there because it's fun. You can also follow this show at Lion Tower Shield on Twitter because the S's cost extra. Or you can follow me at Shelley, S-H-E-L-L-Y, and send along your suggestions for movies for us to talk about. We'll be back in two weeks with a discussion of The Philadelphia Story, another George Cukor movie, which will also be a crossover with our friends at the Agents of Smooch. Bye now.